Our Father, as we come before you this morning, it is with great joy that we can open your word and that we can be challenged by it, that we can be taught by it, that we can be encouraged by it. We want to thank you so much for our Savior, the one who died for us on Calvary's cross, bearing our sins in his innocent, sinless body so that if we just put our trust in him, we will have eternal life. We thank you. Thank you for so great a salvation offered to us fully and freely by simply trusting your son. Now, Lord, we ask that you guide us as we study your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. In this particular section of Scripture, Acts chapter 9, verses 32 to 43, uh, scholars are divided over what it really means. There are some that just see it as stories of Peter's life. Remember, we have been looking over the last couple weeks uh, from chapter 9, the conversion of Saul uh, as he comes to faith in Jesus Christ. We've seen some of the things that last week that happened in his life after coming to faith in Christ. Well, now the attention of Luke, the writer of Acts, turns to Peter once again. And there are some who think, well, these are just some stories that Luke wanted to include about Peter. But always the Word of God has a, has a greater intent than just to put in a few stories. The intent here is that even as chapter 9, verses 1 to 34, introduces the salvation and preparation of the one who would take the gospel to the Gentiles, chapters 9, verses 32 to 43, show how God arranged Peter's travels to be in position to take the gospel to the Gentiles. So we see in the early part of chapter 9 the preparation of Paul. We see the preparation of Paul who would be the apostle to the Gentiles. But we also see in the latter part of chapter 9, our passage for this morning, how God arranged Peter's travels so that he would be in position to take the gospel to the Gentiles. In our section this morning, we're going to see Peter travel to Lydda, which is about 25 miles northwest of Jerusalem. And then he travels to Joppa, which is another 10 miles or 12 miles, about 35 miles northwest of Jerusalem. And that puts him in position to go to Caesarea, where Cornelius, God has Cornelius prepared, a Gentile prepared to receive the gospel of Christ. So what we're seeing here and what you should, oh, the overarching theme here is not just a couple of stories of uh, a story of healing and a story of resurrection from the dead or, or raising from the dead, but what we're seeing here is the reach of the gospel continues to widen geographically. The reach of the gospel continues to widen geographically. We also see here that the reach of the gospel continues to widen into mixed Jewish and Gentile areas. Peter is leaving strictly Jewish areas or Samaritan areas, and he is going into areas in our passage this morning that are mixed 
Jew and Gentile. God is moving him, not only geographically, but we'll see as we go through this passage that he's moving Peter ideologically. He's moving him spiritually to the place where he will accept from God his mission to see the Gentiles come to faith in Jesus Christ on an equal footing with the Jews. That is what is astounding about the church. It's Jew and Gentile together in one body called the church. You see, Gentiles could become part of Israel. They could become God-fearers. And if they wanted to take a full step, they could become proselytes to Israel. But they were never considered on an equal basis with the Jews, ever. Well, God is preparing Peter and us geographically. He's preparing Peter and us ideologically, theologically, for the fact that the gospel is going to the Gentiles and they will become full partners. They will become full partners with the Jews in this body called the church. Well, Peter's ministry continues to widen uh, as we're, we're talking about here in, to areas populated by Jews and Gentiles. Uh, the miracles that we're going to see in this particular section of Scripture, the miracle of healing Aeneas, the miracle of raising Dorcas from the dead, these miracles were to confirm to both Peter and to the church that God was with Peter. Can you imagine what it's going to be like when Peter has to explain, yes, God directed me to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Can you imagine that scene? Well, you're going to see it in a little while. You're going to see it in a little while. So what we're seeing here isn't just a couple of stories of healing and somebody being raised from the dead. What we're seeing here is God preparing Peter God preparing Peter through these miracles that he accomplishes. And we see God preparing the, the, the Jews for the fact that the gospel will go to the Gentiles and they will be on an equal footing, full members of the church, side by side with the Jews. So the miracles confirmed to Peter and confirmed to the church that God was with Peter that the extension of the gospel to the Gentiles was the step that God desired. So think about that. See that as the big picture when you see, when you look at uh, this section of Scripture, chapter 9, verses 32 to 43. The miracles that Peter's going to do in this passage once again authenticate his ministry. They authenticate his ministry. They identify Peter with the ministry of Jesus. They identify Peter with uh, Jesus' t teaching and ministry. And they prepare us, these miracles that we're about to study, prepare us for the gospel and Peter's ministry to the Gentiles. Now, I want to mention as we go through here, sickness and death. Uh, which is what we see in chapter 9, verses 32 to 43. Sickness and death, on another level, uh, are reminders of the fall and our need of a Savior. So there are many levels to uh, what we're seeing in chapter 
9, verses 32 to 43. I kind of look at it like a trifle. You know what a trifle is? Nobody knows what a trifle is? I wouldn't know if my wife hadn't told me. That's, Kathy, tell me. What, tell us, what's a trifle? Now you want some, don't you? And it's layered. It has a layer of each as it goes up. Now, I could have used an onion, but who wants to talk about an onion when you can talk about trifles, right? So when you, when you think about this passage, think about a trifle, think about layers. There are lots of layers here. There's the layer I just talked about, the gospel going to the Gentiles, the authentication of Peter. But there's also the layer here of understanding that sickness and death, which we're going to see in this passage, sickness and death are reminders of the fall and our need of a Savior. They illustrate the helplessness of people and the power of God over sin and its effects. Now, one more thing before we get into the actual passage. Sometimes you and I think that the greatest miracle there could be is the miracle of healing, or the greatest miracle there could be is the miracle of somebody being raised from the dead. But I want to share with you my intent as we study this passage this morning, that the greatest miracle is not healing. The greatest miracle is not being raised from the dead. The greatest miracle is the salvation of a lost sinner. The greatest miracle is the salvation of a lost sinner. And that's what we're going to see. The miracle that Peter does with Aeneas leads many to faith in Jesus Christ. The miracle that Peter does in raising Dorcas from the dead leads many to faith in Jesus Christ. You see, the greater thing is salvation. The greatest thing is salvation. Aeneas was going to get sick again. Some way, Dorcas was going to die again in some way. So the greater miracle, before we get hung up on miracles of healing and miracles of uh, being raised from the dead as being the greatest thing they could be, before we get hung up on those things, let's remember that the greater miracle is that a lost sinner can come to faith in Jesus Christ and become a member of God's family. That's the greatest miracle. All right, all of that's introduction. Let's... Uh, Let's uh, look at the test. Oh, let me share this with you, okay? Well, I'm talking about miracles being the, uh, uh, excuse me, uh, salvation being the greatest miracle, and all the while I have a handy little note card that says that. Warren Wiersbe said this, What is the greatest miracle that God can do for us? Some would call the healing of the body God's greatest miracle, while others would vote for the raising of the dead. However, I think that the greatest miracle of all is the salvation of a lost sinner. Why, he says, because salvation costs the greatest price, it produces the greatest results, and it brings the greatest joy to God. So that's kind of the, uh, the overall look at chapter 9. Let's look at the first couple of verses, verses 32 to 35, and we see power over sickness. As Peter traveled about the country, he went to visit the saints in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, a paralytic, 
who had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and take care of your mat. Immediately Aeneas got up. All those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. The last mention that we've had of Peter in the book of Acts was way back in chapter 8 and verse 25 where he was returning to Jerusalem from Samaria. Uh, he preached the gospel to the Samar- in the Samaritan villages along the way. He strengthened the believers by teaching them, by encouraging them, by building them up, by evangelizing. Peter's ministry brought him in time to Lydda. Now, Lydda is 25 miles northwest of Jerusalem. It's present-day Lod, L-O-D, and also in history, in uh, Israel's history, in 1 Chronicles 8, uh, Ezekiel 2, Nehemiah 11, Lod was also the name of the city in the Old Testament. So it's, it's uh, been around a long time, 25 miles northwest of Jerusalem. Peter apparently had an extensive ministry. Peter apparently had an extensive itinerant ministry, and we don't have time to turn here, but if you'll write down for your own study, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 5, and 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, all talk about the extensive ministry that Peter had. Well, we're told here that Peter went to visit the saints and Lydda. That is, uh, Philip had evangelized this area, and uh, many in that area were scattered in the persecution that began in chapter 8 in the book of Acts. And so Peter goes to encourage these saints. There he found the name, uh, excuse me, before we uh, move on from there, there he went to visit the saints. Now the word saint is another word for believer in the New Testament. It's another word for believer in the New Testament. The Greek word is hagios, and it's an interesting word. It's translated often as holy, translated when it's talking about a person as saints. The real root meaning of the word is different, different, set apart. It's talking about the fact that those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ, we are set apart. We're set apart from sin. We're set apart to God. Also, we are to be different. We are to have a different outlook about life. We're to have different goals about life. We are to be different. Not weird different. Too many times Christians are weird different. You know what I mean? But that's not what the word means. The word means different in our outlook. Different in our attitude. Different in what we're living for. Different in our goals. Different in how we conduct our lives day to day. Different how we speak. We are to be different. That's what it means when it talks about saints, hagios, believers who are holy, who are set apart, who are different from the world around them. In verse 33, he found a man there named Aeneas, a paralytic who had been bedridden for eight years. Apparently, uh, Aeneas was paralyzed 
Uh, for eight long years, he was confined to his bed, uh, could, could uh, uh, do nothing for himself, had to be taken care of. And we read, Aeneas, Peter said to him in verse 34, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and take care of your mat. Immediately, Aeneas got up. Now, there are a couple of things I want us to see about healings in the Bible, healings especially in the New Testament. Healings in the New Testament were of organic disease. Organic disease. That is, this man was paralyzed. It wasn't psychosomatic paralysis. It was real physical paralysis. The, Bible, the miracles in the scripture, the healing miracles, are of organic disease, not psychosomatic disease, but organic disease. The miracles in the, of healing in the New Testament were instantaneous were instantaneous. That is, they happened immediately. That's what we see here. Peter says to Aeneas, and by the way, this is his second miracle of healing a paralyzed man. Remember, the first one was way back in chapter 3. Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and take care of your mat. Immediately, Aeneas got up. So the miracles were of organic disease, the healings. They were instantaneous, and they were complete healings, not a process. Not a process of he got a little better today, a little better tomorrow, a little better the next day, and finally in about a month he was walking. Is that what it says? No. He immediately was healed. He immediately was healed. Peter says to him, take care of your mat. Now, that's a uh, phrase that we're not exactly certain uh, what it means. It could mean make up your bed. In other words, you're, you're finally able to get out of your bed. Now make it up. I don't know if that's what Peter said to him. Uh, it also could be translated take and eat. Get ready to eat. Have a meal. I tend to think that's probably what Peter said to him here. Have a meal, get ready to eat. This is a time for a celebration. Eight years paralyzed. Eight years confined to a bed. It's time to rejoice. It's time to have a celebratory meal. Take care of your mat. Well, J. Vernon McGee, says this about these kinds of healings and talks about what you and I have talked about over the last couple of weeks. And that is sign gifts. And he says this, here is an example of the exercise of a sign gift. We have in the book of Acts, the historical book of the church, the ministries of Simon Peter, who was an apostle, and Paul, who was an apostle, the record states that each one raised a person from the dead. Quite possibly they raised others, but these are recorded to show that these men had sign gifts. They could perform miracles. They could heal the sick. They could raise the dead. These were the marks, the evidences of an apostle. We've looked at that extensively over the last couple of months. 
McGee goes on to say they were apostolic gifts. Paul says that the apostles are the foundation of the church in the sense that the church is built on them. They are the ones who put down the New Testament on which the church is actually built. Today, we do not need sign gifts. The issue today is doctrine. Today, we do not need sign gifts. The issue today is doctrine. They didn't have a completed New Testament. The New Testament was just being written at that time. McGee goes on to say, at the beginning of Paul's ministry, nothing of the New Testament had been written. Paul himself wrote the second book of the New Testament. When he went into a new territory with his message, who was his authority? He had no authority except sign gifts. However, after the New Testament was in written form, the emphasis shifted from sign gifts to correct doctrine. Paul warns that if a man does not have correct doctrine, even if he is an angel from heaven, you should not receive him. And then he quotes Galatians 1.8. However, in these early days of the church, the apostles' signed gifts were important. So that's the reason for these healings. That's the reason for these miracles. They were signed gifts. They, were, they had a relevatory purpose to emphasize Jesus as the Son of God, Jesus as Messiah. They had an accrediting purpose. That is to show that the uh, Peter and the other uh, Paul and the other apostles were accredited by God, that they were accredited by God. So there was a relative relevatory purpose, that is to reveal Jesus Christ as God incarnate, to reveal Jesus Christ as Messiah, these healing miracles, raising from the dead miracles, had an accrediting purpose, and they also had an identification purpose, an identification purpose to identify Jesus with the Old Testament view of Messiah and to identify the apostles with Jesus, his life, his miracles, his ministry. So there is a relevatory purpose, an accrediting purpose, identification purpose. One writer said, the apostles couldn't heal indiscriminately to keep themselves or their friends free of illness. That's an important point. None of the apostles healed indiscriminately. None of the apostles healed to keep themselves or their friends free of disease. Uh, a couple examples of that, and I think I've mentioned these before. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul talks about how sick Epaphrodites was. And he says Epaphrodites was nearly dead. He was that sick. But God spared me sorrow by healing him. Why didn't Paul heal him? Paul had the gift of healing. Paul healed many. Paul raised from the dead. Why didn't he heal Epaphrodites? Because apostles couldn't heal indiscriminately to keep themselves or their friends from illness. A second example is Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 23. Poor Timothy had stomach trouble. The water in that day was not safe to drink. So what did the Jews do? Add a little wine to it to kill off the bacteria. So what does Paul say to Timothy? Hey, 
I got the gift of healing. Don't worry about it. I'll take care of your stomach. Zap. No. What he said is, who knows? Take a little wine for your stomach's sake. That's the life verse of many believers. <laughs> just, just kidding. <laughs> but he says to him, take a little wine for your stomach's sake. Why didn't he just heal him? Because the apostles didn't heal indiscriminately. They couldn't heal indiscriminately to keep them or their friends free of sickness. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 20 mentions Trophimus. Paul says, I left Trophimus sick. Paul, what kind of friend are you? Why did you leave him sick? Why didn't you heal him before you left town? Why? Because you know that apostles couldn't heal indiscriminately. They couldn't heal indiscriminately to keep themselves or their friends sick. Well, the result, all those who lived in Lydda and Sharon, by the way, Sharon is along the seacoast. It's a plain along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea above Lydda. And between Lydda and Joppa is the plain of Sharon. And uh, all who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. You see, that was the purpose right there. The purpose was a salvation purpose. A salvation purpose. Ray Steadman said, Here we have a paralysis of the body. For eight years it had held this man impotent, unable to fulfill God's intention for human life. But that can happen to the spirit as well. When it does, you experience a paralysis of the will. That is, there are people who physically can walk, who physically don't have a problem, but they're paralyzed in their thinking. They're paralyzed in doing the will of God. They're paralyzed in stepping out into what God has for them. It's a different kind of paralysis. Another writer said, where there was helplessness, caughtness, bondage, the word, the name, they have created fresh possibility. Aeneas rises. What is more, Aeneas becomes a witness in his new vitality to what Jesus Christ can do because many of his neighbors turn to the Lord. Many of his neighbors turn to the Lord. Well, our attention turns in verse 36 to the city of Joppa, the city of Joppa. Now, Joppa is 12 miles or so from Lydda. It's the modern city, modern uh, Israeli city of Jaffa. Jaffa, uh, it's, uh, which is a part of Tel Aviv today. Well, we read in verse 36, in Joppa there was a disciple named Tabitha, which when translated is Dorcas, who was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa, so when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, please come at once. 
Tabitha, which is Aramaic for the Greek Dorcas, means gazelle. And she helped in a humble way. She helped the powerless, as one writer said, the powerless, the humble, the needy. Widows were the most needy of that day. And Dorcas, or Tabitha's ministry, was to make clothes for the most needy of that day. She used her material resources and her gifts to minister to the poor. As a result, she had a tremendous impact upon others. She was known for helping the poor, and she helped many needy widows. She had a humble ministry which touched the lives of many. Dorcas ministered using the opportunities set before her. She matched her gifts and her talents to the need. She matched her gifts and her talents to the need. Now, her ministry was humble and touched many lives. A lot of times today, we turn our backs on humble ministry. We want a ministry that puts us up front or we want a ministry that uh, gives us uh, the attention of people or we think that to help others we have to have great amounts of money in order to help others. She apparently, Tabitha, apparently didn't have great resources but what resources she had she used to the glory of God. What resources she had, she used to the glory of God. One writer said, some believe she had the gift of helps or the gift of serving, which is the divine enablement to take the burdens of others upon themselves. Another writer said this, rather than wishing you had other gifts, make good use of the gifts God has given you. Make good use of the gifts God has given you you now this is the time that where we preachers are supposed to do our best to make you feel guilty that you're not doing enough it is i'm not i'm not lying this is the time when we say well what are you doing with your resources what are you doing with your material what are you doing with your time I hope you're impervious to that kind of teaching. I hope you never hear it here. Do you know that if you are married, God has already given you your ministry? And that's to your mate. If you're married, your first ministry and your most important ministry is not to this church. It's not to some outreach in town. It is to your wife or to your husband. Now, how do I know that? Because Paul said that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I don't have time to turn there. That, that, that clock is broken. It really... Uh, it, it just... You know, so funny, the seven-minute timer goes too slow and the clock goes too fast. We just can't get it right here. <laughs> Paul said that in 1 Corinthians 7, and I, I don't have time to turn there, but you can, 
You can look that up on your own. Because of whatever it is, Paul never explains, but he says because of the current crisis, it would be better for you not to be married because if you are married, you pay attention and take care of your mate. Paul said that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So if you are married, your first and most important ministry is to your mate. Don't let any preacher put a guilt trip on you that you're not doing enough if you're, take care of, if you're taking care of your mate. If you're taking care of your mate. Same goes for your family. If you have children, that's your first, after your mate, that's your first ministry. That's your first ministry. So don't let me or anybody else try to make you feel bad that you're not doing enough if you're taking care of those important ministries. If you're taking care of that. Too many preachers say something like this. Let's commit ourselves to being the kind of persons whose loss would be felt deeply because they're always doing good. Or another one who said, Dorcas was an example of those believers who dedicate their resources and gifts to serving others and therefore make an impact upon their world. The world that you and I need to make an impact upon is our home. Now, if you're single, you're not restrained by that for ministry. You are free. In fact, Ken Gangle said this, in 12 short verses, Luke shows us through Dorcas how to exercise the gift of helps, how to serve the Lord while single. How to serve the Lord while single. You're not committed to a husband or a wife, yet you have the opportunity to serve the Lord now, that doesn't mean married people can't do something outside the home. But you know what would be really cool? And what I love to see is when families minister in the church together. Now again, I, I'm not, no guilt trips here. This is a guilt-free zone. No guilt trips. But if you have time and you're ministering to your mate and you're ministering to your children, if you have time, pick a ministry you can work on together. Pick a ministry you can work on together. Well, I think that's enough. <laughs> uh, as we go on here, in Joppa there was a servant named Tabitha. And uh, they sent for Peter. When she died, they, they uh, sent for Peter. Uh, we don't know whether they thought that Peter had the power to heal, to, to raise her from the dead. They may have sent for Peter with the idea that he could raise her from the dead, and that's entirely possible. They may send for Peter just simply because they heard he was in the area, and he was probably about the most important person that they could have at Tabitha's funeral. It may be as simple as that. I tend to think they were hoping that he could raise her. 
Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Peter sent them all out of the room. Then he got down on his knees and prayed. Turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. And by the way, that's very similar to when Jesus raised uh, Jairus' daughter from the dead. And he sent people out of the room, prayed for her, lifted her, grabbed her hand and lifted her up. He took her by the hand, verse 41, and helped her to her feet. Then he called the believers and the widows and presented them to her alive. This became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. Do you see the purpose here? You see the purpose of the healing of Aeneas, the purpose of the raising of Dorcas, of Tabitha. The purpose is that others may see that there's a God who conquered sin. There's a God who conquered disease. There's a God who conquered death. Now, we may not have relief from disease and death in this life. We may be healed in eternity, but every Christian will be healed. And every Christian will be resurrected from the dead. That was the more important healing and the more important resurrection to the apostles. This became known all over Joppa, Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. Now that's pretty significant in itself. And I'll hope, I hope you want to know what the significance of that, but you're going to have to come back next week to find out. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for the ministry of Peter. Thank you for the many who came to faith through the healing of Aeneas and the raising of Dorcas. Thank you, Lord, that you can use us to minister to our mates, that you can use us to minister to our children, that you can use us to minister in your church and to minister in a humble way, often hidden, not out front. But what an important ministry that is. Thank you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.